0: And welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast, part one of a two-part series with Mark Monteith. And part 2 we'll discuss his book, Reborn, The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball in Indianapolis. But for part one, I want to talk about the Pacers today and the start that they've had to this season. Certainly a surprise to an extent. It's the start of a season, so you never know exactly what you might see from a team, Mark. But considering just six players returning from last season, Glenn Robinson out in training camp with an injury. Miles Turner surprisingly (laughs) out after game one. And still, the Pacers have had an encouraging start to the season.
1: Yeah, it's not the usual setup to a great start to the season, is it? You know, Mm -mm. new players, injured players, and yet here they are. You know, usually when the Pacers have gone through a big transition, you know, which is usually a coaching change, there's a slow start. You know, Larry Brown's first team as the Pacer coach, they started 1-6. and At the end of January, they were still like around 500, and then they took off. Larry Bird's first season, you know, taking over a veteran team that had been together, started two and five. So here's the Pacers. There's there's no coaching change, but like you said, they have, you know, only half the team back. They have two rotation players, including what some people think is their best player, and Miles Turner, out, and yet they're off to this five and three start. Now, five and three isn't great, although if you continue a five and three pace, you'll win more than 50 games, um, and nobody's expected that. But they are off to a good start, and it's really the way they're playing. You know, they're, the style of play, the camaraderie they're showing, the chemistry they're showing has taken everybody by surprise.
0: And what we've seen is two very contrasting starts, right? When you look at the teams that have been there and expected to be there, the Warriors, the Cavs, some saying they're bored or they're just not interested. And part of me can understand that. I mean, typically this is when the season gets going. Yeah. You also had a shorter training camp. And so in doing so, you don't have the time. Forget the basketball, because I think guys are in shape anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't need training camp physically like you used to. But learning the plays and the team chemistry and just gelling together, especially when, you again, you talk about teams with so many new parts. Even the Cavaliers made significant changes. And so maybe that's why they're off to a slow start.
1: Yeah, you know, you would have thought that if any team needed a longer or more traditional preseason, it would be the Pacers. They could have benefited from having eight, Preseason games. So well, they had four, and one of those wasn't even against an NBA team. So, you know, that was one reason I had a little bit of trouble getting a finger on what they were going to be like because they hardly saw them. You know, we went to practice and saw stuff there. Uh, I saw the first preseason game on television at Milwaukee and you know, the starters played half the game or whatever. Okay, and then you listen to the others on the radio, and then you see them against Maccabi here, but that doesn't tell you much. So it was hard to know what they were going to be, but uh, as you know, the vibe you picked up from going to practice was very positive. I mean, preseason, yes, every team is positive, but this team <laughs> was different in that you could just tell that they were really enthusiastic. They were close. They were getting along. They had come in early in August, and been together a while, and had already established some rapport in chemistry. And then you just have hungry players. You got guys who really are in the stage of their career where they want to prove something. You don't have any truly satisfied players. I guess Dal Jefferson is the veteran who is beyond his prime, but even... Thad Young, you know, he's 29, he's been in the league a long time, but he's never won big, you know, he's motivated. He's loving the opportunity he has now as a leader with this group. And, you know, his personality, he fits into any situation and is kind of a quiet leader for any group. So the personalities have gelled really well and you've hit a sweet spot where everyone there is happy or at least satisfied with their role
0: And uh, they're all on the same page. What I keep going back to is the culture, I think, got refreshed. There's a buzz. There's a new energy, renewed energy, I think, about the franchise and what they're trying to do here. As I started saying, I think, going back to the golf outing, is this Mm -hmm. is a prove-it year for everyone. Everyone has a lot to prove. Even going to Nate McMillan, he's got to prove that he can coach and really um, inspire the guys and get them to play the type of style they want. But I think more than anything, so we talked with many of the guys, I think I did with Thad Young in particular, Uh, their last home game, is now they kind of have the personnel that best suits the pace that they had hyped up two seasons ago with Paul George and what they were trying to do. Now it seems like they finally have those parts and that they've been able to do that here in the early going where their pace is, I think, top five in the league
1: in the early going. Yeah, they can play the way that Larry Bird wanted to a couple years ago. They have the personnel for it. Um, They have a democracy. You know, This people think... Or people talk about? Well, I guess Miles Turner's the leader now. He's one leader, but he's not the leader, and he's the first to admit that. You have nobody saying, "This is my team." You know, sometimes we we'll hear a guy, "Well, I got to get my guys going," or you know, you know, my team, my team. Uh, that's always a red flag. But part
0: you know? of me doesn't fault guys because typically you see it as the star player, and they're asked, "Hey, with X and, and with these three players gone, do you feel it's on you to take over?" Well. What are they going to say, no, no, I don't really expect to. But at the same time, there's also many that have the argument, if you have more than one leader, you have no leaders at all. Right. So there's that argument, too. Yeah, I think, you know, if you have one guy, like LeBron in Cleveland, that's obviously his
1: team, but he does a great job of handling that role. He keeps his his teammates involved. Uh, He doesn't have, you know, an ego such that he has to be the boss of— well, let me take that back. He may be the boss of a lot of things there, but— He, you know, still gets everybody involved, and I think as a player, he doesn't have a big ego. You know, I mean, he wants to give the ball up, that kind of thing. He wants to win. He doesn't care about averaging 40 a
0: game or whatever which you could do if you wanted to. He's about efficiency. He's very efficient. It's less so about piling up the numbers but instead being shooting 60% from the field.
1: And his effort is very consistent, right? So that's the problem. Like, I did a story last year before the season began about how this is Paul George's team. It was evident by then. Coming off the Olympics, coming off the playoff series he had against Toronto, you know, I asked guys, is this Paul George's team? Well, of course, yeah, yeah, it's Paul George's team. Well, he didn't handle that role well. You know, he uh, talked the talk, but he didn't handle that role the way you want your guy to do it. Reggie Miller was kind of thrust into that role, but he wasn't a talker. He didn't really want to be the spokesman for the team ever. He gave that to Mark Jackson back in the 90s. But, you know, Paul George was going to play that role, but he didn't follow through on it the way you need to. You know, he wasn't the first guy to every game like Reggie Miller was or the first guy to practice. He didn't give the greatest effort in practice like Reggie Miller did. He wasn't probably as coachable as even Reggie Miller was, you know? So, if you're going to have a guy like that, he, he's got a huge responsibility. And Paul George didn't follow through on that. I'm I'm not going to bash Paul George. He's taking a little too much heat right now locally. Yeah, I don't know. He's understand gotten that out of hand I mean. this whole thing about big shots and game winning shots. Paul's a good he's guy. He's not clutch, Mark. Haven't you heard? He's not clutch. <laughs> Funny, I remember a lot of clutch shots. But anyway, he's, Yeah, I tried to document you know, those too. <laughs> as you know, Paul, yeah, you did. That was good. Paul is a, a good guy. He's just a passive aggressive guy. Who isn't cut out for leadership, and that's okay. Most people are not cut out for natural leadership. Um, he is probably more comfortable now being down there with Westbrook and Carmelo than he was here being the guy. So that's perfectly fine. But it was they were
0: trying to follow a guy who wasn't a leader, and that created a huge void. The best quote I heard, and I, I wish I knew the outlet to give him credit, but it was Paul talking about, you know what, in my days here, I was one that just wanted to take care of my own business, yeah. show up when I wanted. On my schedule, go to practice, get my work done, and I know it'll be great. Mm-hmm. And, but in doing so, I don't need to tell others what to do. I, that's not me. And yeah. that's totally fine, but then you need someone else to take on that responsibility. And that was just a weird yeah, locker room that- dynamic, <laughs> Jeff Teague.
1: Never really settled in. Right, right. Your veterans were not leaders. And so what's a guy like Miles Turner going to do? He's full of enthusiasm. At 20? Yeah, he can't speak up. And I remember talking to him last year after games, would you like to speak up more? He goes, yeah, but it's not my place. So that was the problem last year in a nutshell. Your veterans were not leaders. Uh, A lot of them were coming off the bench and not particularly happy with that. They were frustrated by their role or were just laid-back personalities. You know, Monte Ellis, an introverted guy, Lavoie Allen, Rodney Stuckey, these are quiet guys who are not going to show leadership. So you had no leadership last year, basically. Nate McMillan had told me on media day that I had a lot of individual meetings last year, you know, to try to get guys going. And it it just never happened. So Thad Young, I'm sure, was frustrated, but it wasn't his place to speak up, being new to the team. Miles Turner couldn't speak up. So it just didn't work. And that's really no one's fault. It's hard to put a collection of 12, 15 people together and have great chemistry, but it's happened this year. Partly credit to Kevin Pritchard and his staff bringing in the right people, but partly by accident. You know, Kevin didn't go into the summer saying, I'm going to trade Paul George, and boy, I'd sure like to get these two kids out of Oklahoma City. You know, he didn't go in there initiating that trade. That's just kind of the best opportunity he had when he found out he had to trade Paul George. So there was some luck there, but what I've learned over the years, whenever you have a championship team whether it's the ABA Pacers or any other team there's luck involved you know there's a lot of things you can't control and first and, among them is just health yeah <laughs> like absolutely yeah that's thing. always number one being uh, having good health and we'll see how that goes so far they're not really off to a good start in that regard but you know these guys both will be back before long um so but luck always plays into it and there was some really good fortune over the summer, you know, getting the guys they got and also some great decision-making on top of that. So it's a really fascinating situation right now with the Pacers. I can't recall a team very much like this that came together so quickly and has such a bright future for a long time. They've got three players here in Oladipo, um, Miles Turner, and Sabonis. These are all potential all-stars, legitimately potential all-stars. You put that kind of core together, you got something going.
0: Last thing on the past, you mentioned some of the names that were in the locker room last year, and but I did feel like last year's team by Larry Bird was not a good one put together. I think proof of that is look where they are now. Ellis, out of the league. Stuckey yeah. out of the league. Allen, out of the league. Seraphin overseas. Rakeem Christmas, overseas. Mark, that's five guys right there who don't even have a job in the NBA right yeah.
1: now. Yeah, and there's always some turnover, right? From year to year, you lose two or three guys, but it is interesting what happened uh, I mean, Aaron Brooks is the only guy who was in the NBA, and he's the third-string point guard in Minneapolis.
0: Right? I loved your tweet before they played them. you go, who would have guessed Aaron's the <laughs> one of that group <laughs> the that one guy the left.
1: Yeah, but all those guys had done things in the past, and if you go back when they signed Monte Ellis, I was kind of surprised by it. Uh, my question was, well, no team has ever really tried to keep him. Does that wave a red flag? But he had averaged 19, 20 points in Dallas' this last year, and Bird wanted to go up-tempo, and certainly Monte Ellis can do that. And as we got to know him he did actually show leadership during games as far as communicating with He'd guys He'd over a huddle sometimes. Yeah, absolutely and he would take Paul George aside and explain something to him. So I you know I be, I came to like Monte better but he had just broken down physically. You know, he couldn't play, you know, the way he used to and how do you know when a player is about to break down physically when he just averaged 20 points a game in Dallas. So I understand that, although I did question it. Lavoy Allen, when he first arrived, was, hey,
0: this guy's really pretty good, you know? He was rebounding Solid backup well. big. Yeah. Lavoie will get it, as Frank Vogel always yeah. said.
1: Um, Larry Bird said that first. We've discussed this. We but. have. I don't
0: remember him ever saying <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, Bird said so it. So I always it's, go with Frank. Not a big <laughs> deal, but
1: yeah, talking about rebound, Lavoie will get it. And he did, but he... As a guy, you never know how a guy is going to react to getting comfortable and feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm, I am got a made here. I got a contract, you know, how some players back off. Some players play just as hard or harder to try to get the next contract. And those guys, you know, once Stucky got hit, well, he was injured also. You kind of take him out of the picture. There's kind of a legitimate explanation for all of them. But it just wasn't working. But think about this: I think last year, what if Lance Stevenson had been there all year? Because he was exactly what that team needed when he Some arrived. Life. Yes. Some life, yeah, life to the team. Adrenaline, you know, right? And that's happened to be what every team has a certain chemistry. That team was talented but too laid back. Put Lance Stevenson in that mix, you know. Teague lit up, Paul George lit up. He Lance made Seraphin a relevant player by getting him the ball. Remember the playoff game where suddenly Seraphin's mm-hmm. going off in the first half. I wonder, what if Lance Stevenson's there all year? They might have won 50 games like we thought they were going to. Uh, So they might have been one player away from a really good season. And, you know, with Lance Stevenson, they were 5-5 and last year, and all five losses were to Cleveland, and all five losses were still up for grabs in the final minute of the game. So, you know, they were close. That team was close. They had to do a whole restructure, and it came together incredibly well.
0: The strange thing is today – Lance is kind of the only disappointment right that now is, yes. with this season as he has not mixed in with this new tempo and what, what they're trying to do. Obviously, he's a guy that needs the ball in his hand, mm-hmm. and that kind of takes away with what they're trying to do is move the ball quickly, whip it around, and even get a shot up four seconds into the shot clock. Why, is that why you think he's— had some struggles here?
1: It is surprising. It makes me wonder, is something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that is affecting him? I don't know because I thought this is going to be perfect for him. He's going to be a sixth man, which he's fine with. He's going to be the guy who, when he reports to the scores table, the fans start cheering. He's going to play starter minutes off the bench. He's going to have the ball in his hands. It's going to be an up-tempo style, which is perfect for him. It all seemed, he's going to be healthy. Last year, he's 75%. Mm-hmm. This year, he's 100 It seemed perfect for him. And he's the one guy who's not playing well. And I don't know why, you know, on opening night, he said he was too hyped up.
0: You know, and he, What a great impression, by the way, by Nate McMillan posted. Yeah. that yeah. Was, I don't think he got <laughs> enough credit for that, Mark, post game Because no, Nate doesn't do that. No, not at all. And he was like, yeah, Lance came up to me and said, I'm too hyped. I'm too hyped. That was pretty fun. <laughs> that was
1: good. And Lance, if you remember, I think he was 5 of 17 from the field that night or whatever. He, he fired more shots than anyone on the team, if he I took remember right. He 17 shots, and he was taking bad shots. So, And then Lance said, okay, next game I'm going to look be pass first instead of shoot first. And he did, but he's lost confidence in a shot. I think that's affected the rest of his game. I think maybe if you get a few three-pointers to go down or a few jump shots to go down, he'll be okay. He showed some signs against Sacramento. He had a pretty good stat line there. Of course, it was garbage time, so you can't put too much in, and into it. But, you know, I keep thinking he's going to get it going. I can't imagine he's going to struggle all year because people, you know, it's not like this is the only place he's played well. You know, when he was with New Orleans and Memphis, those brief stretches, he had good games. You know, he had 20-point games and so forth. So he doesn't have to be a pacer to play well. He doesn't have to be with Frank Vogel to play well. Uh, he should be really good on this team, and we'll see how it goes. But for right now, it makes no sense. I overheard Lance say after practice a few days ago, somebody just casually said to him, how you doing? He says, oh, I'm mentally exhausted. Now, I don't know the reason behind that. Is it because he's not playing well and he's putting pressure on himself? Yeah, or is something happening in his personal life? I don't know, but I think we'll in time find out. But I just got to believe he's eventually
0: going to get something going. Yeah, I would think so too. Just six points though is the highest he I scored know. since opening night. Yeah, that's very. And he didn't play him. well opening night. <laughs> no, so, he got the
1: numbers. Yeah, uh, it took a lot of shots,
0: wise, but it took him a while to get there, as you alluded to. Seventeen shots. So yeah,
1: that, that's been a mystery. And Lance has always kept people off balance, I guess. But the way he played, one thing I was impressed with him last year is that. Even though he needed the ball in his hands, he made the simple basketball play more often. He'd reverse the ball. He'd make a simple pla- uh, pass. Uh, so it showed maturity. He wasn't the guy who had to make a playground play or whatever every possession. You know, he was really showing more discipline and maturity, uh, which made me more optimistic about him. But it's you know, he had, I think six to ten three pointers as a pacer last year, and now he can't hit one. You know, he he's been so up and down in his career as a three point shooter, and now he's down. But you think he's got to be capable of being up again. Uh, I think when, if and when Sabonis goes to the second unit, which you know I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, that will help Lance a lot because those guys are
0: lethal in the pick and roll. Yeah, those two thrived in the preseason. We can go there right now. I was going to go to Vic, but we might as well stay <laughs> there. With Sabonis and Lance, they have that instant chemistry that those two talked about developing even before training camp. I love the conversation with Lance about it, and he was talking about, yeah, um, right away, it's because of the pick and roll, and then you go. Yeah, because you find them (laughs) on the pick and roll, so guys are... More apt to set hard screens for you because they'll get payback.
1: Yeah, he was saying, for some reason, big men like playing with me in the pick-and-roll. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you'll throw them the ball. Some guys don't get it to them, or they don't get it to them in the right place at the right time, you know, where they can get an easy shot. Like I said earlier, Lance made seraphim relevant last year in that playoff game just off the pick-and-roll. He's a great passer, probably the best passer on the team. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people—I heard overheard one front office person— Say Lance is our best player right now, not long term, but right now Lance is our best player. This is after watching them in August and September. So my goodness, if he gets going again, how much will that help when you add Turner and Robinson to the mix? So um, I don't know, but you know, Sabonis, as Nate McMillan has
0: said, makes everyone around him better because his, his natural ability. is incredible. That's what that's what's remarkable is his footwork on the block and his. The way he sees the floor is well. ability
1: and it sets the
0: screens, all all right? Hard screens and yeah. and we were talking to him about that and he said, Yeah, I'm not doing anything specific. That's how you do a screen. Yeah. That's all I've ever done. Yeah. Is this different than people are doing? <laughs> you would yes, think it be, is.
1: You would be. You would think it'd be the easiest thing in the world to set a screen, you just stand there, but a lot of guys try to shy away from the contact, or they don't set it in the right place or at the right time or whatever. And he's good at that. And then he knows when to roll and how to roll. He's got great hands, so he can catch the ball in traffic and score with it. He can pass the ball out of traffic and get an assist. You know, he'll assist a lot of three-pointers, you know, from the lane. Um, So he'll make Lance better, and Lance can help make him even better, I think, when they're together. Um, but Sabonis, it amazes me. Did Oklahoma City not see these skills in him last year? At? I don't
0: think so because they didn't use them in this no. sort of. Fashion. He played four. You know, yeah. Stephen Adams
1: was their five, and he's a good player. Uh, but Sabonis played four. But you would think at some point they recognized, man, this this guy's a good passer. We got to take advantage of that. And you Mark,
0: know? this brings up the conversation about Russell Westbrook and MVP. And yeah. did he really need to dominate for them to have success? Now, again, we've had a very small sample size with Vic and with Sabonis here with the Pacers. But seeing those two in action, it makes you wonder, Russ, maybe he truly was selfish and didn't take advantage of their skill sets. And when you think of the great players, one of the first things you go to is their ability to make everyone else around them better. Right. Basketball is not meant to be dominated
1: by one player. And Westbrook, yeah, he averaged a triple-double, had an MVP season. Team was good, but it hurt guys like Oladipo. It hurt guys like Sabonis. You know. So think back you know people compared Westbrook to Oscar Robertson who averaged a triple double but Oscar Robertson's teams didn't win big either you know they didn't ever get to the NBA finals you know when he played for the Cincinnati Royals now when he got to Milwaukee at the end of his career and didn't score as much and played with Jabbar then they won a championship but basketball is not meant to be dominated by one guy and that's kind of what the Pacers faced last year everything was supposed to be around Paul George and he was the guy and it doesn't work, man. It's supposed to be a democracy. You might have a great player like a Jordan or LeBron, but those guys knew how to involve their teammates. So it's meant to be a democracy, and that's, again,
0: what this particular Pacer team has. And we've heard several guys talk about why why the pace and their efficiency has worked, and it's because the offense hasn't gotten bogged down, yeah. and it's not a lot of isolation ball, and it's not a lot of one-on-one sending it into the corner and then everybody clearing out it's whipping it around and getting a great shot inside the best shot absolutely
1: now people blame paul george for that but it wasn't just him you know monte ellis needed the ball jeff Mm -hmm. teague needed the ball so when you have three guys in your starting lineup ellis didn't start at the end of the year but when you have three starters who need the ball to be effective you're going to have a problem and nate mcmillan didn't want to play that way clearly you know that now by the way they're playing now My own, you know, people criticized Nate a lot last year. My main thing, I think he's a good coach. I wonder about the half court offense. Why can't they look like other teams look in the half court? I think we know now that it really wasn't Nate's fault. He wanted them to play a certain way. I think he did finally kind of concede and say, well, we got to conform to the talent we have. And okay, Paul George needs the ball to be effective. So we're going to let him go one on one. And same thing with other guys. We're going to run Jeff Teague off picks and try to get him into the lane for a layup. He kind of did what most coaches do, which is conform to the talent on hand, but it wasn't the way he wanted to play. And now he's got a group that doesn't need to play that way. I mean, uh, Collison doesn't need to have the ball a lot. Neither does Oladipo. We go right down to the line. And again, Sabonis makes that work unbelievably well. Um, so that's when basketball
0: is fun to watch when it's moving like that. Victor Oladipo. Yeah, What he's been able to do in his first couple weeks here with this franchise, already named Eastern Conference Player of the Week. First time he's ever received that. First time he's really had an opportunity, as we talked about, with Russell Westbrook. Top 10 scorer right now, which I don't think anyone would have ever predicted. And that'll probably taper off just a little bit. A little bit. But what have you made of what he's been able to do? The biggest takeaway I have is, much like Lance Stevenson, is that being in this state, being in a franchise that appreciates him, it gives him confidence something he didn't feel. He, at least he said he didn't feel, he didn't feel wanted, desired, appreciated in the other franchises, something that he does already here. And we saw mm-hmm. that here, uh, as he was introduced and with miles out, Vic was the last one introduced overwhelmingly large, yeah. um, applause for him, much like he was in Bloomington.
1: Yeah. He's in a comfort zone, isn't he? He's really, uh, liking being in Indiana because he's been here before, but I think a lot of it is just the opportunity he has, you know, he, He was a real promising player in Orlando. He had a 40-plus point game in Orlando. He averaged 17 a game his second year there, I think it was. Um, And last year still averaged 15, but obviously was constrained by playing with Westbrook. Uh, So I think it's the fact he's in a better system for him. He's Mm -hmm. in Indiana, and he just is a motivated guy who wants to make something of his career. You know, This is a guy who lost, what, 20 pounds in the offseason? I never thought he was fat, but he lost all this weight, worked on his body worked on his game. I think he would have done that if he'd been traded to any other team, probably. So I think he just wants to prove himself as a player. He's 24 years old. On that new contract? He's got a contract. Again, some players get that contract and back off, think, I've got it made. Or some guys are motivated by it. i got to live up to this. Got a lot to prove now. Yes. He's obviously a guy who is motivated by it. Maybe not motivated by it, but it doesn't make him back off any. So that's to his credit. You know, that's credit to his character. So... Um, he's just, I think, motivated for a lot of reasons. You know, I don't think he's got a... He talks about having a brick on the shoulder instead of the chip. You know, <laughs> I'm already this kind tired of, of that storyline. Yeah. And yeah. he keeps
0: getting asked about it almost yeah. every post-game session. Yeah.
1: I understand, you know, where he's coming from, but I think he would be motivated. Uh, I don't think he's trying to prove anything to Oklahoma City people as much as he's just trying to establish himself as the player that
0: he thinks he can be. Yeah, and with with that whole thing. I I don't mind players needing some kind of motivation, some always say, hey, you're in this league. Why would you need motivation? But look, you got an 82 game schedule. And if you're any good, you're playing to June. Yeah. That's a lot of time to maintain an incredible focus throughout a season. That, of course, LeBron should have some focus of some kind, some mini focus, maybe that he wants to accomplish this week or with the team next week or over the next 2 months. I don't yeah. mind that at all. Some yeah. criticize that though.
1: Yeah, I think ultimately though a player needs to be motivated just by the fact I want to be as good as I could possibly be and I want to win, you know. Long term that has to be your motivation yeah. because the external motivations wear off pretty quickly. You know, Reggie Miller talked about, you know, different things he was motivated and he always inspired hatred against New York, you know, <laughs> to motivate him in the playoffs, you know. That's fine short term, but long term It always has to come down to your character, and I just want to be as good as I can be, and I want to win as much as we can win, and I want to be a team guy. That's
0: the only approach that will carry you through an entire career. The biggest surprise to me with Vic hadn't been his foot speed. We knew that and how he gets to the basket, but it's the shooting. Right now his numbers are way up, like 10 percentage points. Yeah, Um, And and over the years, if you look back at at what he's done year over year, he's he's elevated his shooting percentage each year. Yeah. But right yeah. now it's at nearly 49%, and from three over 50%, when I think he's like a 31% three point shooter. So he is just on a roll right yeah. now. Yeah, and he's worked
1: on it. A lot of guys improved that three point percentage a lot throughout the course of your career. You know, you could think of Al Harrington, look at his three point percentage just when he began here, but what it became. You know, he went from a 20% shooter to a 40% shooter, that kind of thing. I'll ask you, Sky. what do you think Oladipo will have as a scoring average at the end of the year? 22. That's about where I am. 20 to 22. Early 20s. Yeah, low 20s is what I'm saying. He's 24 right now, I think, as we speak, is he? Or is he a little higher? 24. 24. So it'll drop a little bit. And, you know, Turner coming back will absorb scoring, obviously. Uh, Fewer opportunities for Oladipo. But I still think he'll be over 20. You know, the way he runs the floor and he's getting to the foul line, which I love to see. That's what Paul George failed to do. Paul George did not want to get fouled. Uh, he was a great free-throw shooter who didn't like to get fouled. <laughs> Reggie Miller was a great free-throw shooter who tried to get fouled. Oladipo obviously doesn't mind getting fouled. I think he's averaging seven attempts a game. That's great when you're a good free-throw shooter. And Drawing a foul is a great thing. It gets other guys in foul trouble, stops the game. You know, You get a little rest. You can play more minutes that way. I mean, drawing fouls is a tremendous thing, and he's doing that. So I give him all the credit in the world. You know, I think, um, again, one thing I was worried about him when he came in here for his introductory press conference and quoted his usage rate to Kevin Pritchard and wanted to get that up, I thought, ooh, is he going to just look for shots? Is he going to be hunting shots? Is he only concerned about scoring? And then when he went out that second game against Portland and was 5-17 of 17 from the field or whatever he was, you know, it wasn't pretty, uh, and forced some shots, I was skeptical, thinking well, this guy is too concerned about scoring and this is going to be a problem. But I'm convinced now that he's not. You know, the way he has given up the ball, he had a 14-point game uh, and was fine with it. The way we've seen him interact with teammates on the court and off,
0: giving that game ball to Glenn Robinson. That was pretty cool considering they hadn't played a regular season game together. Right. Like, they couldn't have that much chemistry to this point. None of them really can. Right. After the
1: San Antonio game, you know, he hit that huge shot – and gave Glenn the game ball. I mean, I'm convinced now he's fine. He's on board with the team approach. He's not, uh, you know, trying to average thirty a game or whatever. But that was one question I had going into it: was you know, okay, is
0: this guy going to be a, a an issue as far as their team chemistry? And he's not. Team captains: Thad Young, Miles Turner, and I've mm-hmm. also heard Vic. Is that he's that big voice in the locker room more than anything? If you had to pinpoint, it's those three guys really speaking up, and and you would expect that those are kind of the if you will the leaders on the team and guys that are making big contributions every night.
1: But Darren Collison is a leader too. I mean, I think on the court as the veteran point guard, he's the one who's getting people in place. Uh like Nate McMillan says, he's the one who recognizes if a guy hasn't touched the ball in a while, he gets it to him, you know. So he's a leader in that regard. He's
0: just not as vocal. And Were you surprised yeah. to hear McMillan talk about how we want to run our offense through Sabonis? That was interesting, wasn't it? That, After the last home game. Especially because once you expect Miles to come back, he'll assume that starting role. And Sabonis, yeah. a bonus. I think he can thrive off the bench, and mm. maybe they'll play They'll play some together. But to run your offense through what is your backup center, that was yes. interesting. and you can see it. You know, they're doing it. I mean, they're,
1: he's getting the ball, and they're running off of him. A
0: lot of dribble handoffs. A lot of, of dribble of handoffs. handoffs. Yeah, the
1: DHOs, as uh, mm-hmm. McMillan called it. That's the thing now in the NBA, dribble handoffs.
0: Uh, Just like ATOs after timeouts. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he is great. I mean, he'll, he'll take the ball to the basket. Uh, you know, he'll hand it off. He'll set a screen. I mean, it makes sense, and credit to Nate for doing that. And, uh, yeah, that is interesting. And I remember I went around the locker room asking about that, and some guys, you know, agreed with it, and um, Depot kind of, I didn't really notice that. You know, Vic's kind of a weird interview sometimes, but – um, he's
0: thoughtful, though, and he, yeah, he, he takes his time to give answers, yeah. too, uh, which fine, some have but... trouble with because they want to jump right in. <laughs> yeah, we know who that is.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but,
1: you know, he's, uh, it's interesting that they did it so quickly, and it does raise the question, okay, what do you do if you don't start him? But hopefully a guy like Miles Turner is learning something. From Sabonis and thinking, yeah, I could play more like that too and be more effective. I mean, it makes
0: the offense it lubricates the offense when you have a guy like that. Several guys several guys have said they're learning from Sabonis in particular. EK was like I'm learning Mm -hmm. from all the guys, which is the typical rookie young guy answer. He's like, especially Sabonis. His craftiness and his footwork in the paint.
1: Sabonis is their most complete player, I think. I mean, he does everything. He can post up, he'll step out and hit shots. The one thing we haven't seen him do that he can do is hit three pointers. He's hit one. He's hit one so far this year. I think only three attempts, so it's not like yeah. he's tried. Well, last year he had three or four games in OKC where he hit four three-pointers. It should not surprise anyone if he has a game where he hits four three-pointers, But you can tell. there's a Occasionally he'll get the ball out there and think about he's it.
0: He's tentative out there still. Yeah.
1: And I think he knows it's not part of their offense, but if they wanted him to or if the the situation uh, offered to the up to him, he would do it, and he could do it. He could knock down four or five three-pointers in a game sometime if that's how the offense turned out. Obviously, he could draw an opposing center way away from the basket, and at the same time, he could post up that center as well. How many guys in the league can do that? You have big men who can step out and hit threes, but they aren't post-up players. And you have post-up players who can't step out and hit threes. This guy can do both.
0: The big concern, I think, here in the early going is defense. doesn't come as a surprise because that's going to take time to to get playing defense on a string as a lot of coaches like to use it what have you yeah what have been your impressions of what they've done and or haven't done yeah it's not that good and i don't don't think it'll ever
1: be great not a top 15 defense. it will never be like the teams of 13 and 14 that were built around defense this team isn't long for one thing it's a relatively short nba team as strange as that sounds that's a good point because pacers are without paul Mm. george hill was very long with his Used length. to have a 7-2 center and Hibbert back there mm-hmm. protecting the rim. So it's not as long as those teams, and that is important. But I think they'll be okay because I think they're willing to do it. I think Dan Burke is going to keep coaching it. Nate McMillan always emphasizes that they're not going to just blow it off. And I think the players are willing to put the effort into it. They just have to learn how to cover for one another and how to communicate out there. And uh, I think Miles Turner is good at that, communicating on the back line. Sabonis is probably learning that right now with new teammates. But it's about communication, weak side defense, uh, just knowing where to be at what time. Uh, You know, Bogdanovich is never going to be a really good defender. Uh, but i think the backcourt he was court, a
0: competent defender i thought in cleveland the other night at well, you know, least he, he had tries. that big effort play against lebron yeah. where yeah, he better yeah. he better put that on his career highlight <laughs> yeah. film right there well
1: you know what he told us in in training camp that he worked hard this summer to improve his foot speed you know strengthening his strengthening his legs and so forth and he tries you watch him he does try and that's half of it right there just put the effort into it and the backcourt i think is pretty good defensively cuz Collison – and Oladipo were quick mm-hmm. enough to guard the perimeter. So they need rim protection. You know, Sabonis is not a shot blocker because he's not a big leaper. He's not that long. When Turner gets back, they'll have that covered. So I think his return will make them a much better defensive team, but they're
0: never going to be great, but their offense is good enough to make up for that, I think. TJ Leaf has impressed in his, his yeah. little contributions to this point, about 15 minutes mm-hmm. per game, which seems about right. Early on, though, I was, I didn't have too high of expectations for him. I knew what he could shoot, Mm -hmm. but I thought elsewhere he might be very limited. That has not been the case. No, he's
1: a really smart player, and he's got more agility than you think. He can take the ball to the basket and make a move or whatever and score off the dribble that way. I saw that in Summer League. I was really encouraged by what I saw from him in Summer League, just his ability to create a scoring opportunity for himself. And he's going to be good. I mean, (laughs) you know, he's a great shooter. We can say he's a great shooter because he hit... 60% of his field goal attempts in college and 48% of his three-pointers. He's had big moments here, knocking down, you know, four three-pointers in one quarter, that kind of thing. So he's never going to lose that. And he's always going to be a smart player. He's always going to have the work ethic. He's a guy who played guard a lot coming up to learn the ball handling skills. He's a coach's son. He's able to score around the basket in a variety of ways. He's going to be really good. I mean, he's going to be a really good player. He's, what is he, 20, I think? 20, yeah. And he looks like he's 16. They
0: drafted an 18, 20, and 21-year-old. <laughs> yeah. And now I mean, EK's 19. <laughs> yeah. And that was pretty cool, by the way, since we're on it, it was, uh, that David Benner got the picture of EK, yeah. the youngest active player in the league, and the with oldest. Sacramento's Vince Carter, the oldest player at 40. Isn't
1: that amazing, the separation of those two guys? But Leaf, I think, is going to be really good. You know, he just needs time. Uh, he's certainly going to struggle defensively right now. But sometimes, you know, we all talk about how defense wins championships, but I go back to, yeah, def- you got a guard, but scoring is still the most important thing. Think about the Showtime Lakers weren't known for defense. Bird's Celtics teams were not known for defense. The Pacers team that went to the finals was not known for defense. You need, you know, scoring. And you can make up for mediocre defense with great offense. You just have to put effort in the defense. You know, you got to give help. You've got to put the effort into it. But if you'd have to choose one over the other, I'd take offense, you know, to, over defense because you've got to be able to score the ball.
0: But what makes the Warriors so so good is I think they're the top rated offense and the top rated yeah. defense, but they're kind of the exception to the right. rule. Right.
1: The Pacer defense, you know, people were kind of encouraged after the San Antonio and Sacramento games because they held teams under Hunter, but that was fluky because San Antonio was missing Kawhi Leonard and they're not a high powered offense anyway. And then Sacramento's just not very good, so that wasn't that really felt an like a preseason game. Yeah, work. they were they were they were brutal. They're one and six. They're one and seven now, right? So they're bad, and so you can't take much from that. But you saw them against Cleveland, put effort into defense, and I think the Pacers will continue to do that. And I think their defense will be good enough to win. They are not going to be the best defensive team in the league. They're going to be a lot better when Turner comes back, and they're going to get better even without him. And they'll be good enough.
0: Last thing, a lot of new looks to Pacer games that we should hit on. Say, Vincent Center, number one. Mm-hmm. New lighting um, within the Pacers. And I wish they'd go back to how it was in the preseason where it was very dark. I know they, they've turned on more light, house lights because, for one, it, what the guys were used to. It was interesting to hear a couple guys critical of the new setup. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, because they hadn't been over there. They'd been practicing in the same Vincent Center. Yeah. And then also, I know a guy like Lance Stevenson loves the fan interaction. And if you can only see 18 rows up, that changes things. You have new uniforms. We now see the new Hickory white uniforms, which I think looks really sharp. Um, and the new court. Any of that jump out at you? As...
1: It's uh, it's like they're reborn. Oh. Reborn? <laughs> no, it, it, it is funny. Well I mean, played. it is a, a whole new reset. You know, I mean, yeah, everything, the practice facility, the uniforms. I like the lighting, you know, that they had in the preseason. Yes. Uh, it's kind of a compromise now. You know, it's, little bit darker. I, that shooting background, the dark background, is supposed to be good for shooters. There are fewer distractions. That should be more important than fan interaction. You know, Purdue used to have a um, dark background at Mackey, and the players liked it. It didn't look good on television. It looked like a dark and dingy place, but it's great for the participants, and that should be the main thing. I think it's good for the fans, too, because the court looks like a stage—
0: you can focus on and I think you're yeah. less apt to look at your phone or something when you Exa- see yeah, when you absolutely. see the, the, what's going on on the stage well I should probably pay attention. <laughs> yeah, when you go to a play,
1: you know, the lights aren't up in the seating area, you know. I I like it. I wish they would go back to it and give people give the players a chance to get used to it. Like you said, they just had never done it before. They weren't used to it. I think it's great. They do that at like the forum. They have it darkened. Uh, a lot Square of places Garden they're doing it now. Do it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would like to see them go back to that more often. But it is a whole new refresh this year, including the roster, including the style of play. Uh I haven't heard this much enthusiasm for the team since the beginning of the 13-14 season. You know, the... To me, you go back, that 12-13 mm-hmm. season when they went to the conference finals that first time, the second half of that season started like 10-11. and Then they got it going, and people got really enthused, and they went to the conference finals, and people were really excited and looking forward to the next year. Hey, we got Danny Granger coming back, we're in, and Lance is good now. We're going to be <laughs> really good. And they started out 9-0 and that next year, and they were, what, 16-3, and or I forget what it was exactly, but I know they were 9-0. and And Granger's
0: going to come back. Well, Granger never did come back. That was a story that we'll never get our life back from those days. (laughs) I know. Hopefully Turner's back here uh, maybe tonight, probably Sunday, and then we'll quit getting those questions.
1: Right, right. Turner will be back soon. If not Friday, as we're speaking, he'll play on Sunday, I'm convinced. Um, So this team, that team kind of crumbled, in my opinion, because it got distracted by success. Got a lot of attention, got a lot of um, fame, and got a little satisfied. You had... Lance Stephenson wanting to make the All Star team, you had Roy Hibbert kind of just bottom out. You he know, fell he, off the map. Yeah. He had people telling him, "You're an All Star. You should be getting the ball more." He spoke up, felt embarrassed. He went into a shell. To me, the beginning of that of the demise of that group was Roy Hibbert. You know, nothing personal, Roy. You're a nice guy, but he was the one who led to you know this falling apart. That was the start. Paul sure. George got hurt. Uh, David West leaves, and I don't blame him because he wanted to win. Uh, everything just crumbled, and that can happen. That happens to a lot of teams, and that is what makes sports interesting. You know, you think you got it going and it falls apart, or, as we're finding out this year, you don't think you have much and it becomes great. I don't think this team will crumble this year because these guys are hungry. They've never won anything. They're not going to get that much attention. They'll start getting more and more attention, but they're not going to be like the, a league favorite you know, to win the championship. So they're going to be hungry all year. Now, maybe if we're talking two or three years from now and they've they've been to the conference finals, maybe we start to see some cracks. But this team this year is going to have a hunger all season long that I think will carry it through and have
0: it winning a lot more games than people think. If I was a coach, at least in front of the media, I would set low expectations because you're exactly right. Then people... Are comfortable and going in, they don't have uh, a preconceived notion of what you're expected to do, whether it's winning your conference in, in, in college play or whatever. And then right. also, I think other things contributing to all this is the Colts really struggling, that luck being out. And then the thing I keep hearing from fans is just the likability for them of this roster yeah. is much higher. And I think part of that's also because they didn't really get to know the last group very well. And yeah. there's been so many new parts. We were talking to George Hill before he was here with Sacramento and he was trying to, all right, who is left? Well, there's Glenn, there's Miles, yeah. there's Joe Young. And I think that was yeah, it. that was it.
1: And he barely knew those guys, right? He was only with Glenn one year, one year, Joe, one those. year, you know? So, yeah, it, it's interesting how things can change so dramatically and so quickly. You, you talk about the Colts 10 years ago, Colts were up, Pacers down. Now it's the opposite of that. Uh, Andrew Luck, You know, a few years ago, oh, he's going to lead him to Super Bowls, then he gets hurt. It's just how many?
0: Is it three? Is it four? (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Then he gets hurt, so now, you know, it's a whole different situation. Think, how popular was Paul George when he broke his leg? You know, he broke his leg, and everyone felt sorry for him. He was a perennial all-star. He made the comeback for those six games, standing ovation. Uh, Then he's on the Olympic team, and he's— really played a great role in helping them to a gold medal. He was like their dirty work guy coming off the bench, playing defense, diving on the floor. I was really impressed with him in the Olympics. That's why going into last year, I was so optimistic about that team because he had shown so much in his comeback and his role in that Olympic team. I thought he's going to be a good leader. You know, he knows how to play. He was saying all the right things uh, and it just didn't happen. You just never know. So, Hey, as a journalist, that's what makes it interesting. And it's just life.
0: As a tease to part two of our conversation, as we dive deep into your book, Reborn, the Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis, Uh, beyond those years, if you had to write a book recently, what would be the story? Would it be the brawl? Would it be the finals? Would it be what happened three, four years ago? Any of those jump out of you? Uh, Even if it's a short story? Yeah, ago? it'd be more of a short
1: story, I think. Um, which one would do the best? Uh, oh, which one would sell the best? Probably the team that went to the finals, because that's the happiest story. You know, the, the bird years were interesting. Yeah, but that, that team was together like a decade before it got to the finals. It was slowly building and You know, it was stuck in neutral for a few years in the early 90s under Bob Hill, always finishing right around 500. Donnie Walsh should be fired or trade this guy, trade that guy. But, you know, Larry Brown comes in and they take off and Bird comes in. And it was, uh, you know, so that was a great story. Certainly the brawl. And I was there. And I'm glad I was there. I would have hated to to miss an event
0: like that. but. I'm yeah. surprised it hadn't been a 30-for-30 30 30 just yet. Yeah, I that bet it will be like eventually. That seems like a perfect at least 30-for-30 30 30 short. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it could be a whole production. Maybe the y- setback is getting participants.
1: I think so. Now, like I've participated in stories on the brawl. Like there, some guy on ESPN did an oral history of the brawl, and I participated in that. And uh, Steven Jackson and Jermaine have shown they'll talk about it. Reggie never has. You would not, you know, I don't know if Donnie Walsh would want to or Bird would want to or not. You would need to find, what was his name? John Green, the guy who Mm -hmm. threw the cup. You need to find him. Apparently, him and Ron Artest or Metal World Peace are now friends. That's Ron for you. You know, I mean, Ron. (laughs) So bizarre. Yeah. Well, that's why people like Ron. He's really a a good guy, and Ron feels horrible about what happened, and he recognizes what it did to the franchise. I remind people somebody assaulted him, somebody threw a cup of water or what beverage on him. Uh, and he jumped up and should not have gone into the stands, but he didn't attack the guy. He just grabbed the guy and said, did you throw that? And he grabbed the wrong guy. Uh, the guy he turned around and half-heartedly hit, it hit him first. So, again, you know, ABA years, that somebody happens. threw a drink
0: <laughs> on a player. He was going into the stands, I promise you. Mark, I appreciate you coming in. This part one and we'll air part two in the coming days. And if you haven't done so already, check out his book, Amazon and local bookstores here in Indianapolis. Reborn, the Pacers and the return of pro basketball to Indianapolis. And, of course, you can also check out his work at Pacers.com and MarkMonteith.com. Thanks again, Mark.
1: Thanks, Scott. Look forward to the next conversation.